Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Irish on Tap, a podcast about the Notre Dame Fighting Irish presented to you by the ONTAP Sportsnet. I'm your host, Brandon Suarez. You can follow me on Twitter at BDON300. But before we get started today, I'd like to introduce the presenting sponsor of this podcast, Manscaped. If you're looking for the best manscaping products on the planet, go to manscaped.com and browse their awesome selection. The Lawnmower 3.0 brings you 7,000 RPMs of skin-safe technology so you don't cut, scrape, or nick those sensitive areas. Want to keep your boys fresh all day? No problem. Go and pick up the ball toner and the ball deodorant so you're fresh all day long. Go to manscaped.com and use promo code ONTAP to get 20% off and free shipping on all your manscaping needs. All right, everyone, it's our bye week. We promised you guys all a special guest this week. Let me check in with my co-hosts, Brian and Ethan, and then we'll get right into the interview for this afternoon. Brian, how are you today, brother? I'm doing good. It's a bye week. Not much is going on. A little bit of recruiting news, but we're 8-0, and and we just got our work cut out for us, and it's good to be an Irish fan. Ethan, how about you, man? Same here. I'm excited for our guest today. I don't want to delay it anymore, so Brandon, uh, let's get to it. Hey, yeah, this guy has the one-stop shop for anything Notre Dame news. I would call him the number one insider, usually the uh, most liked, most retweeted guy for anything Notre Dame going on in the Twitter sphere, but one of the hardest-working people in the media. Welcome to the show from The Athletic, Pete Sampson. Pete, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We appreciate you taking the time. So real quick before we get into it, how have you been? I know you got your bye week. This this is still a busy time because of the recruiting, but how is everything going for you? It's good. It's, uh, I mean, the recruiting keeps you busy, and then it's also sort of figuring out, for me, I think I've spent more time this week figuring out, all right, what do I want to write during the week of Notre Dame Clemson Part 2? Um, started working ahead on that kind of stuff because, uh, you know, some of the stories I like to tell, to, I, you know, you're trying to, like, chase down sources and contacts and um, – Usually they end up taking a few weeks to put together instead of a few days. So I'm trying to figure out, all right, what kind of treatment can I give the rematch um, to get close to the original? Because the original was awesome and um, I was able to do some good stuff that week. So I want to want to be able to deliver again because I, I know it's a game that every Notre Dame fan and most of college football is going to be tuned into. Yeah, it was one of the biggest wins of all of our lives. I think we all came out and said that as someone who's covered games of that magnitude, aside from Notre Dame winning, aside from the win-loss, what separated covering that game from, say, like the 2018 college football playoff or like the Miami or Michigan loss? You know, I I think that what separated it was, I don't know, with the Clemson game in the playoff, I I didn't feel like there was sort of this pent-up demand for, maybe it was because Clemson wasn't number one at the time, but I just felt like that game a couple weeks back it just felt like almost like if Notre Dame wasn't going to win now if they weren't going to get Clemson with a backup quarterback who was awesome but at home I mean Notre, I think that was the, the difference was like Notre Dame never gets that game at home it feels like going back to the bush push and I covered that one too this was this was right there I mean it it was kind of a drag that you didn't have a full house there to sort of experience it. Cause then, then I think it would have been just like this overwhelmingly awesome environment. Um, but I think that the, the differentiator from Miami was on the road, Michigan was on the road, uh, college football playoff or Alabama game. Those were neutral site games. So I think having the home atmosphere, even only at 11,000 fans, that was what made it unique and made it kind of special. Yeah, Pete, I couldn't agree more. And what you said about them finally being able to pull one of those 
wins off was something that at the end of the day kind of surprised me because like you said, those two games against Georgia, that heartbreaker against Clemson and a couple of losses on the road against Miami and Michigan where they, and obviously Clemson in the college football playoff where they kind of got, they kind of got beaten pretty badly. So mm-hmm. let's get into our first question. Were you at all surprised by their victory? Because I remember in the third quarter when I believe Notre Dame didn't even, I don't know if they even scored a point, but it just looked like Clemson was starting to outlast Notre Dame with their depth, especially the skill positions and whatnot. So mm-hmm. surprised by them actually pulling off the W. I, you know, I picked them to win the game beforehand, but when ETN scored with, I think, th- what, three minutes and 30 seconds to go, I kind of thought that was, that. I thought that might be it. And then when they turned the ball over, I think it might have been a five-play drive where there was the, the PI that got picked up and then Skoranek sort of had a drop on fourth down. You know, at that point, you know, I've been covering Notre Dame for 20 years. I've seen that game before. You know, where Notre Dame can't make the play at the end. Um, and I think that's why when they get the ball back, and even you're sort of like, all right, well, maybe. But then the the 53-yarder to Avery Davis, you're just like, holy crap. Like, they made the damn play. Like, Notre Dame never makes that play. Um, not in my time covering them. Not in your guys' lifetime watching them. So it was like, it was sort of the first HD Notre Dame moment. Because um, you really have to go back to, to Florida State to find one. Oh, in 93. So it was, as the game was unfolding, I thought that they were not going to pull it out at the very end uh, when they went down and then turned the ball over. And then when they scored at the end, it was just like, it was almost like my brain couldn't process what I was watching because I'd never seen that before. And you think after covering them for 20 years, you've sort of seen everything, but like I hadn't seen them make that play in that spot. So that's why, that's why it was, such, it was kind of a cool moment. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head right there with I mean, I even tweeted it. It was like five minutes left. I was like, I've seen this movie before. I know how it's going to end. And it actually ended up ending um, differently than we're all accustomed to. Notre Dame ended up pulling it off. It was good for every Irish fan involved. But that just leads to the narrative that they only won with Trevor Lawrence being out. And a lot of I remember seeing a bunch of people tweeting that it would have resulted in a two or three touchdown win for Clemson. And that leads into our next question. We know DJ threw for 439 yards, so we all know that Trevor Lawrence is the better quarterback, but at the end of the day, you can't, it's impossible to really throw for like 600 yards in the air. So, I mean, how much of an effect do you really think Trevor Lawrence's absence have? I think he's much more mobile and he might have freed up ETN on the ground. I think those are valid points, but in terms of like um, amount of points, I don't think he would have affected the outcome of that game that much. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's hard to say because uh, so the game goes to overtime. So we're talking about like if, if Lawrence would have made one play that Uyunglele did not, would that have been enough for Clemson to win? Maybe. I guess it just sort of depends on the play, right? But Uyunglele, that that's the best quarterback Notre Dame has played all year. Um, and I think he's probably the third best quarterback in college football in terms of like raw ability behind Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields at Ohio State. So, I mean, would Notre Dame have won if Lawrence had played? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's we'll find out in about three weeks, right? So I think that he probably would have made a difference. Does that mean Notre Dame would have counterpunched differently? Would have Clark Lee had something different in his bag for a Lawrence than, than Uyunglele? Yeah, probably. So, I mean... Who's to say that Notre Dame wouldn't have played it differently, too? Um, but I do think, to me, 
you know, the Clemson personnel losses on defense, uh, whether it be Tyler Davis or James Skalski, uh, I think it was Mike Jones is their outside linebacker. To me, that those were those were big, maybe even bigger than Lawrence because, you know, Notre Dame was able to have some offensive success in a way that, you know, maybe it would be different if Clemson was at full strength. So it's, I guess the, the way that I described it is like, all right, there's no Lawrence. Does this sort of diminish the win? I, w- I would say, yeah, it does. It takes it from like a Catholics versus convicts, 93 Florida State quality win to just the best win of Brian Kelly's 11 years. So it's like, as long as you're okay with that, like the best win that Brian Kelly has ever had, um, then, I, then I don't think spending too much time on, uh, you know, Uyunglele versus Lawrence is, you know, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think you're completely correct on the, the, the line of scrimmage guys making more of a difference because in 2018, Notre Dame did not control the line of scrimmage by any oh, stretch no. of imagination. And um, a couple of weeks ago, they did. And I, I think they do. I think Clemson's much worse on the defensive line than they were in 2018. But I also think Notre Dame doesn't pound them on the ground as much as they do if they don't have one of their best defensive linemen out. And I think they have had even two linebackers out. So we'll see how that plays out in the next meeting. But I don't anticipate Kyron Williams running as wild as he did. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I mean, look, Notre Dame's offensive line, down chair Jared Patterson at center, that's, that's going to be something that Notre Dame is going to have to adjust to uh, in a way that maybe Clemson had to adjust to. But, you know, was Ben Skoranek and Javon McKinley, were they as confident when the Clemson game started as they are right now? Probably not. Uh, Michael Mayer is getting better every week. Um, you know, Chris Tyree at the Clemson took good steps last week against Boston College. So, you know, it's, it's kind of – there's no reason to think that Notre Dame is not going to be better now than they are than they will be on December 19th in the same way that Clemson will be better on December 19th. So hopefully we see a game that's played at an even higher level than the one that we saw on November 7th. And you talk about that being the biggest win for Brian Kelly. Does that game put him over the top in terms of him not being able to win those big games? We talked about the Miami game. We talked about Michigan games mm-hmm. like that. Does this finally put him over the hump or does he need – that playoff win or that national championship? And then how far is he off from that Dabo and Saban level? I mean, I think with, to get a statue, you got to have a national championship. Um, I do think the credibility that he gained by beating Clemson the first time is, is massive and it will, it will endure beyond, you know, if they lose to Clemson, but make the playoff and let's just say they, they lost to Alabama in the semis. Like I still think Notre Dame fans will look at this as like, yeah, bummer of an end, but like what an awesome moment they had. And I think that Notre Dame fans have sort of been starved for a moment like that Clemson win. So I, I think it, the, the credibility, the benefit of the doubt that he earned on November 7th is huge. How far is he away from Dabo and Nick? I mean, they have multiple national championships and Notre Dame's chasing their first. So that's a that's a huge gap. I, I think that Notre Dame especially with the way Ian Book is playing right now, has a should and has a chance to like not just make the playoff but make noise in it in the way that like let's say they get to the playoff and they lose a game sort of like Clemson in twenty fifteen or Florida State in twenty fourteen. Like that could happen. I think that would be a man, awesome effort. No shame in that at all. Um I, I think they're they are primed to like give great shots and take great shots against Alabama and Ohio state in the playoff if they keep playing the way that they're playing. So it's, you know, and if, if you get one of those or, or if you just beat Clemson a second time, 
then that uh, that stature of Brian stature of Brian Kelly around Notre Dame, I think that that even grows and grows and grows. So it's um, you know at that point, I think that he would have a massive amount of benefit in the account in the bank, sort of like a lot of credibility in the bank. Along the same lines, you know, you talked about if they get to the college football playoff and lose to a team like Alabama, you know, that obviously satisfies Notre Dame fans. But do you think that finally satisfies the national media? It depends on the flow of the game, right? Um, I, I think know, so. If, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's like if they lost, let's say they lost 33-30 to Alabama in the semis, um, I think people would view Notre Dame a lot differently. It's like, wow, they're, you know, they're not knocking on the door. They've sort of opened it. Um, so that, that I think, would change how Pete, Brian Kelly and Notre Dame are perceived. I, I think November 7th went a long way in that regard, too, that – you know, they finally got over the hump. And like when I go on national shows, you know, a lot of times I'll get asked about Miami in 2017 or Alabama in 2012 or Clemson in 2015 or Clemson in 2018. And I mean, I think that the Florida State 2014, Clemson 2015, the two Georgia games, like those are just as important. Like Notre Dame has been close before. They haven't been able to close the deal. But I think that's why that 53-yarder to Avery Davis was so significant is like, you can get close, like getting close. I want—I don't want to say getting close is easy, but getting over the hump is really damn hard. And so for Notre Dame to do that, I think that's that's sort of recognized nationally now in a way that the close losses just didn't really didn't really get them over the hump from a perception standpoint. So, Pete, you mentioned Ian Book and how he is um, set up to not only get to the CFP, but also potentially make noise. So I was wondering on your thoughts on his performance so far this year, I mean, we've all heard the the slander that's been going around on Twitter, just Irish fans thinking that Kelly made the made the wrong decision in the quarterback. And then he, do you think he's potentially proved people wrong in the last two weeks? I know he's completely flipped the narrative. He had a really, really pretty poor QB rating in the first five games. And then mm-hmm. the last three games, it's been actually pretty elite for lack of a better word, and he finally got that big win against Clemson, really played well against his the guy that they were saying was better than him last week against Boston College. So what were your thoughts on Ian Book throughout those five games, and were you also starting to have those hesitations, or was it pretty apparent last year that Ian Book was the better QB? I've told everyone that I can this. Like, at no point, like, I go to all the practices – preseason, spring practice. Obviously, I'm at the games. You guys are watching the games, too. I watch the warm-ups. Like, I have at no point did I ever watch Ian Book and Phil Dracovic on the same roster and think, I don't know, Dracovic, like, I think they got to give him a look. I think he's closing the gap. Like, I never felt that watching him throw on the same team as Book. So that's, like, that's one thing. Like, was Book playing very well the first five games? Not really. I, th- I thought he was just okay. Probably at best. But the last two games, I think he's been lights out. Um, you know, and I think you could, if you want to throw Georgia Tech in there and Pittsburgh in there too, I think he was good there too, but certainly not at the level that he was against Clemson and Boston College. And, you know, the reasons for that, I think that a lot of times me, like people in the media, we sort of forget that players can improve during the season. And I think Javon McKinley, Ben Skoranek, Michael Mayer, like I think his targets are getting better as the season goes on. That's making Book more comfortable, and he looks like a guy that has total command of the offense. I think that there's a second touchdown to Skoranek at Boston College where Book's looking right, Skoranek's to the left. He gets flushed out. Instead of dropping his eyes and scrambling, 
He just sort of like throws off his back foot, no problem to Skoranek. I mean, to me, it looks like a quarter, like it's like, I don't know if you guys seen the matrix, but everything is like so slow for him now. And we, you know, you talk about the game slowing down. The game seems like it's barely moving to book all of a sudden where he's just in complete, like he doesn't see the offensive line. He doesn't see the defensive line. He just sort of, it's like seven on seven all of a sudden. Um, so I, I mean, he's, he's playing great. Ultimately, how are quarterbacks judged? Do you have a big win or not? Um, I don't think if Ian Book threw for 34 touchdowns again, like last year, but he lost to Clemson. I don't think Notre Dame fans would think like, Hey, great season. I mean, he's sitting there at what is it? How many touchdowns does he have? Is it 11? Um, it's not a, it's not a huge number, whatever it is. Um, I believe it's finished. last time we checked, it was at eight, but it could be, I think it was at yeah. eight on Sunday. Yeah, so he, I think he threw three. Yeah, he threw three against Boston College. So he's sitting there at eleven touchdowns. You know, he's on track for statistically kind of a, a, a regression. That's the the buzzword, right? But does anyone care because he beat Clemson? Um, you know, ultimately that's how that's how. Yeah, he's got eleven touchdowns and one pick. Like the the win is what matters, not the stats. Um, you know, he if if Notre Dame makes the playoff and he's got twenty touchdowns and two interceptions like that's not a hugely like explosive season but man it would be the all-time winningest quarterback in Notre Dame history uh and he'd have two probably two huge wins to show for it yeah and you mentioned book being able to improve in the middle of the year I think a big thing that nobody really seems to mention is he lost Cole Komet he lost Fink and then he also obviously lost Chase Claypool so he had an entire set of new pass catchers not only at wideout but also at tight end and Michael Mayer's a freshman. And then, like you said, Javon McKinley, Ben Skoranek was a graduate student transfer. They haven't really played that much. So that was a good point with what you said about how they're not only is book getting better, getting some rhythm, but also those pass catchers are starting to actually know what it takes to play some Notre Dame football. And then I also wanted to mention, I think you've tweeted about it a lot, is how underrated of a runner Ian Book is. I know we've been on that bandwagon. Oh. Well. He's... I mean, one of the most elusive quarterbacks in college football in that pocket. I brought up this comparison a lot about him and Russell Wilson. Obviously, he's not up to that talent level, but he's similar in the fact that he never really gets sacked. He turns seven-yard sacks into, like, three-yard gains, which on the surface doesn't really look like much. But when you're watching the game, that's big and can save a first down. So if you want to go into a little bit about how much of an efficient runner he is and what you've seen in that regard. Yeah, it's like I so I track rush efficiency, and it's basically if it's first and ten, did you get forty percent or, or four yards to move the sticks? If it's second down, did you get sixty percent? Uh, third and fourth down, obviously one hundred percent. And he is by far Nerney's most efficient runner, where he is either keeping them ahead of the chains or he's converting first downs on on third and fourth down. So it's, and I think it's also like his his running ability. You you watch the way defenses play him; they will often have to spy him. Uh, to one, they spy him, but Clemson tried to do it, and the linebacker wasn't athletic enough to actually do it. So it's like you're removing a guy from your defense, essentially. You're playing 11 on 10 um, at that point. So that's, you know, he's, he's more, I think the way that Clemson had a defensive lineman was like, he's faster than you want him to be, I think was the quote there, which I thought was like the perfect way to put it. We're just like, you, you feel like you're grasping out to tackle him, and then he just squirts away from you. And I think that's, it's been a big part of his game. I, I don't know if that is why he's throwing the ball better now that he's, you know, having this rushing success or not. But um, 
it's a it is a huge weapon, and I think it's really sort of underrated um, as people sort of view Notre Dame's offense from the outside. One thing you mentioned about Ian Book's success, one guy that needs to be named in that is offensive coordinator Tommy Reese. What are your thoughts on him so far? He called a sensational game against Clemson. You know, we all mm-hmm. talked about how we needed Notre Dame's offense to attack more downfield, and they really did that against Clemson. Obviously, the Avery Davis play, you know, one big one right there. But what are your thoughts on Tommy Reese so far throughout this season and really just his time at Notre Dame? And how much does that quarterback connection between him and Ian Book really help? I, I mean, it's, you talk to people in the Goog that tell you it's everything. Um, that the connection between Reese and Book and sort of seeing the game the same way, and Reese can sort of call the game he wants to call because that's the game Book wants to be called, if that makes sense. So, I, Reese has been really impressive to me. I was, I don't want to say I was skeptical when they hired him, but I was like, all right, you know, you. Did, I think when Notre Dame pitched this, like we did a national search and like. We're hiring the guy that was here already. Um, I was sort of like, okay, did you do a national search? But if Reese is the guy and you believe in him, like I give Kelly credit because he was all in on him. And I think Reese has been outstanding. You know, his relationships with the players, um, I think that's really sort of been a force multiplier with the offense where you're getting more out of guys because the communication is so good. Um, so I've, I've been very impressed with Reese, the play caller, Reese, the communicator. Um, I think as a, a Notre Dame fit, he's excellent. I think his relationship with Carkley on defense is really good, too. So I think that's part of it. So it's been I mean, that that, that really could not be going any better uh, for Tommy Reese or Brian Kelly than how it's gone uh, through the first what, two thirds of the season. So on the topic of Clark Lee, do you feel this is the fastest defense that Notre Dame has had under Clark Lee? I, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm hesitant to go there because I, you know, it's like what speed 2018 with Tillery, Okwara, and Kareem, that was an incredibly fast defensive line, but we're not seeing them like in the open field. Like they didn't have anybody like Kyle Hamilton. They didn't have anybody like Uwusu Koromoa. But, you know, pride and love were like pride certainly is fast. Um, love was fast enough. So I think I have a hard time with that. I think that the thing that's different about this defense is like, I don't think they've had two explosive players at the same time, like Hamilton and Wusu Koromoa. Um, so to me, that's what sets this defense apart. I think the defensive line is pretty good. I think their linebackers are, are, are solid. I think their secondary is pretty good, but they have two just big time first round pick stars in Hamilton and Wusu Koromoa. And I think that, that really turns your head when you watch them um, where you just sort of see speed that feels a lot different than what you've seen in the past. Yeah, and I think Owosu Koromoa has put enough on tape to where it's not even a question between him and Micah Parsons. To flip it over to the offensive side of the ball, we do have a lot of talent as well over there. In the backfield, have we seen this type of speed with guys like Kyron Williams or Chris Tyree? When was the last time you've seen that that type of tandem in the backfield? And then, too, you mentioned Sebo Flemister. That's a perfect change of pace back, someone that you can throw in on third down or in the goal line situations mm-hmm. to get the tough yards? Probably from a speed perspective, I would say no. I don't think I've seen a tandem like that. I mean, they've had good groups. You had the, the Theo Sierra in 2012. That was a good tandem. Even Sierra Jonas in 2011. Um, Josh Adams, you know, like Josh Adams and Dexter Williams were on the team at the same time, but not really a tandem. 
you know, maybe CJ ProSize and Josh Adams in 2015, but that was, a, I think, a little bit of a surprise as it was happening. Um, you know, but what did, what did that tandem have in common with this one? Like a badass offensive line. Um, you know, so it's like who could, who wouldn't be able to run behind that group? But um, I think, you know, Kyron Williams has really been, I think, probably the breakout player from this team that before the season nobody was really talking about. And now even nationally people know. So, you know, Tyree's freshman season, I think, has sort of gone as expected. You know, it started out hot, cooled off. I think he came back on last week. Uh, Sebo Flemister, I think it's just, I feel like he's he stampedes as much as he rushes through a defense. Um, so he's been fun to watch. So it's like they have they have real running back depth. Um, and I I think in terms of a trio, they probably have not had a, as good a trio under Brian Kelly. Um, they've had some good combos at the top, like I mentioned, but in terms of that third back, I, I think you'd have to say this, this is the, the running back group that has the best depth. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree. And we've talked about the O-line being studs. we talked about Ian Book's play. We've talked about the stud backfield. The last thing we want to talk about in regard to the offense is what we've seen at the wide receiving position. We talked a little bit about how much Skoranek has, um, I mean, he's pretty much just gotten healthy, but how much Javon McKinley has improved. Um we talked about, we haven't really brought up Braden Lindsay and Kevin Austin's injuries, but that's also an aspect of what next question leads into. I think those are the biggest speed threats that Notre Dame has at wideout is Braden Lindsay has real like NFL level speed. And besides mm-hmm. him, in my point of view, I think that's big, or that that's Notre Dame's biggest deficiency is really elite speed on the perimeter at the wideout position. And how do you think, if you agree with that deficiency, how do you think that plays out if they play Bama in the college football playoff, Ohio State, Clemson with Trevor Lawrence? Is that something that we can mask as, as Notre Dame? Or do you think that's something that really hinders them to reach that ceiling and get to a national title and win a national title? It's a good question. And I guess I feel like I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because I, I – you look at the defenses they played, like the defense they played in Alabama in 2012 or the defense they played against Clemson in 2018, and whatever Clemson, Ohio State, or Alabama throw at Notre Dame in the playoff is nowhere near as good as those defenses. Um, those defenses were able to sort of look at Notre Dame's strength as a power running team and turn it into a weakness to sort of say like, oh, you're one-dimensional, lights out. Um, I don't think that any of the three defenses Notre Dame would play in the playoff are that good um, to sort of take Notre Dame's strengths and wipe it out to the point that their weaknesses were so, so exposed. I agree with you that the outside skill position talent is just okay. Um, I wouldn't go any farther than that. It's been, you know, and when the season started, I wouldn't even said it was okay. I'd say it was kind of like sub pedestrian, but with McKinley and Skoranek coming on, I think Book has some faith that they're going to be where they need to be, and they can go up and make plays, Skoranek in particular. So I guess if, if Notre Dame was going to run into Clemson again, the 2018 Clemson again, I think Notre Dame's offense would have a really hard time moving the ball because you're going against three first-round picks on the defensive line, a first-round pick at linebacker, both corners are first-round picks, both safeties get drafted. I just don't think that the defenses this year in college football are quite as loaded as that one was. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely correct. And I, I think it won't be as much of a weakness, just like you mentioned, because 
there isn't that defense like the 2018 Clemson defense. That was one of the best front sevens I've seen in college football in the last decade. Like, I mean, I'm not that old, but like as far as I've been watching college football, that's the best front seven I've ever seen. I mean, Notre Dame had a very good old line and they didn't win the point of it. I mean, they lost the point of attack emphatically. And then, I mean, going off what you said is I agree that they don't have much speed, but I think you brought this up as well, that they have a lot of really big body, athletic, physical pass catchers. Ben Skoranek's pretty big. Michael Mayer is massive. Tommy Tremble is big at tight end. You got Javon McKinley is a good 6'3", 220. So I think while they don't have guys that can burn you deep like Braden Lindsey, I think they have a lot of possession receivers that are coming down with the football and a lot of one-on-one opportunities that's really going to play well going into the future. And I think that's something that Ian Book needs to keep in mind when he has single coverage. I don't think he's going to have a lot of guys that are getting, getting open with their feet, but I think he's got to be able to trust them to win battles one-on-one with their physicality. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with that. I think that's their their strength is going to have to be strong enough that can overcome a team sort of sitting in the box. And it's like, think about the 2017 team with Brandon Wimbush and the McGlinchey, Nelson, Josh Adams group. Like that, the passing game was not good enough on that team to stop a team from being like, all right, eight and a half guys in the box. Let's see what you do. Um, Notre Dame couldn't counter that. And I feel like Notre Dame has some counter punches on offense now whether it be book running or Skoranek McKinley or mayor on the, the 1 millionth crossing route that he runs on third down where he hurdles a guy and stiff arms another, like I think Notre Dame has enough counter punch or countermeasures now that offensively they can sort of hold their own. Uh, even if a team tries to load up the box. Agreed. So we've talked about the offense and how potent it is. This is one of the most dynamic offenses I've ever seen under Brian Kelly we've talked about debated whether Notre Dame, and this is Notre Dame's, fastest defense so now do you think that this is already the best team in the brian kelly era do you think it's a no Mm. i think it's too close to or too early to tell i'm gonna say too early to tell i think that if they beat clemson the second time i would say it is it's difficult because i when i get this best team question because i always sort of look at the players not the coaches and i think that if you looked at the 2015 team I felt like that team was better than this team in terms of just like the raw material that I had, but it didn't max it out in any stretch of the imagination like this team is. So ultimately I think, you know, this, if this team makes the playoff. If, and if they get, let's just say this team makes the playoff and they get one, one more big time win, whether that's Clemson and Charlotte or they lose in Clemson to Clemson and the Charlotte, but then they beat Alabama or beat Ohio state and play for the title. Then I would say this is, this is the best team, clearly. Um, right now, I think it's Scott. It's in the discussion. But I think with one more marquee win, it would it would be number one uh, without much debate. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. They've only really played one team that's even really in the, like, the same universe of their talent level. Right. I think Deshaun Kaiser, if he comes back in 2017, I think that would have been probably their best team. Under Brian Kelly, but obviously that didn't happen. Went to the NFL, mm-hmm. and I mean that just didn't. I agree with 2015. They had a lot of injuries that year, so it didn't really come into fruition. But I, I definitely agree that 2015 or this year are the two best teams of the Brian Kelly, Kelly era. And I think Kaiser worked Kaiser worked out for the Bears too this week. I told you that before the show. B. They definitely need a QB, so maybe they can use him. One thing I wanted to ask: We've talked about 
Notre Dame's talent so far. So now I want to ask about the future teams on the schedule. Obviously, the biggest opponent right now is North Carolina coming up. Do you think Notre Dame is able to run the table the rest of the year? Do you envision North Carolina being a potential trap game, or is there any other game on the schedule going forward before that uh, potential rematch against Clemson that Notre Dame has trouble with? You know, I, I think North Carolina is sort of too good to be a trap game, if that makes sense. Um, you know, especially coming after a bye week, it's not, you know, you're not in a position where I think you should overlook anybody. That offense is way too good uh, to overlook. So I think that's just going to be a fun game. You know, I don't think Wake Forest isn't good enough to me uh, to be in a position to push Notre Dame either. So I, I, I really like Notre Dame to finish the regular season unbeaten, uh, to go to Charlotte face Clemson at 11 and 0 Clemson should be 10 and one. Um, and I just think this team is sort of too mature and I think just too dialed in to, to have a, even like a Pittsburgh 2012 triple overtime scare type of game. Um, I think this team is sort of above that. So, you know, babe, I'm going to knock on wood on my desk here. Um, as I say that, but I, I do like the maturity of this team is very old. I feel like they will avoid sort of that that pitfall game, that trap game that uh, has either gotten good teams or, in Notre Dame's case, almost gotten good teams uh, in the 2012 year. I think it's pretty wild, too, especially with just how crazy this college football season has been to sit back as a Notre Dame fan right now to get over that Clemson win and look ahead to the future and look ahead to now a conference championship game and kind of just watch the rest of the college football season unfold like obviously we have a huge matchup this weekend with indiana and ohio state like who would have thought that would be a huge matchup for a college football playoff potential so personally and and where are you at in terms of just feeling comfortable where notre dame's at in terms of where they should be for the college football playoff and you know watching obviously the big mm-hmm. 10 and the sec compete for getting a spot in there as well I mean, I, I think they're in great shape. Um, they, they could. I mean, they couldn't be in better shape than they are right now. Um, and I think that in some ways, the not only did they beat Clemson, but for the Clemson game to be as like epic as it was, that people are clamoring to like they want to see it again. Like I don't think you see a uh, desire for rematches a lot, but I think that one. People want to see that again. Um, and I think that Notre Dame, if, like, let's just say Notre Dame loses 37-30 to Clemson in Charlotte. I think Notre Dame will be in, unless Florida upsets Alabama, I think Notre Dame is in. Um, so I think it's, when you can look at the rest of your schedule and say, like, you know, the conference championship game, even if you lose it, you're probably still okay. You can't ask for a whole lot more than that, I think, if, if you're contending for the playoff. Because usually when you lose the conference championship game, you're done. Um, but I think Notre Dame has been so impressive this year and the win over Clemson has such credibility that they should be okay. So what do you have for a prediction if the hypothetical Clemson rematch happens? We don't need a, a score if it'll get you in trouble. I know you probably <laughs> want to save it for your article or your pod, but yeah. what's what? give us the formula. Give us the formula to being able to slay the Giant twice. I don't know what it is because you got Trevor Lawrence again, and then I also think that you know, as, as impressive as Tommy Reese has been to do to try to get Brent Venables twice is really tough. Um, so I think that you may have to the formula may have to include another Owusu Koromoa strip 
return fumble touchdown. Like they may need an explosive play on special teams uh, to do it because I, I really think that that Clemson is going to come out like kind of for blood in that one. You know, it's not going to be a full house or anything like that. I don't think the crowd's going to be too much of a dynamic, but I, I just think that game's going to be fascinating to watch just because I think Notre Dame is going to take some punches in that game and have to come back. Like maybe, maybe the formula is going to look a lot like Clemson in 2015 where Notre Dame actually got down early and it, it looked bad. And then they had to sort of slug their way back into it. Cause like, that's a game where you got to assume Clemson is going to put some points on you uh, with Trevor Lawrence. You know, how do you, how do you absorb that and then counter punch it? Um, so I think it's probably going to be like an, a big in-game adjustment type of game for uh, Tommy Reese and Clark Lee. And you'll learn a lot about them as coordinators. I think they've had great seasons. That's just like another chance to show it. I think the best part about that Clemson game, aside from winning it, was the fact that no one has really, I mean, I know there was an overtime or two overtimes, but no one really puts up 47 points on Clemson. Like it just doesn't happen. So for us to sit here and have the same offense that we saw score 12 points against Louisville, and we were all pulling hair out of our head, and the sky was falling, and we're like, how are we going to play Clemson in a month? To go out there and do what they did on offense was great. And then, too, like you said, the defense stole the narrative of Clemson was the superior defense. Going into that, everyone was like, well, Clemson's the better defense. We'll see what Notre Dame has, but who have they played? Nobody. And then they went out there and did their thing. And then, too, like the biggest point of that game was ETN. Uh, The way that Owozu Koromoa in that front seven handled ETN was phenomenal. But I want, as much as I want to say I want someone to take Clemson out, I want that matchup again just for gratification because no one will give our credit, give us our credit if we beat Miami or North Carolina. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a game we all want to see, right? Like, I want to, I want to cover Notre Dame Clemson again. I don't want to, I don't want to cover Notre Dame Miami again. Like, give me, give me Trevor Lawrence, give me like the Death Star at full operating capacity. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see. And if Notre Dame loses it, whatever, like they're probably still making the playoff. Um, that's good. So I, I just, I would like to see Notre Dame take its shot against the best. Um, you know, I think you, sometimes you'll see fans argue about, well, is it, is it better if Notre Dame goes to the playoff and gets blown out or you know, should they just win a, a New Year's Six Bowl that's outside the playoff just to get that money? Like, no, like, the point of learning football is try to win a championship. And like, you can't win a championship if you're not in the playoffs. So just like keep banging your head against that wall. It may really hurt when you're doing it, but eventually you'll get through. And I think that's kind of what we saw on November 7th. They kind of got through on that. So I want to see them try to do that again. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, Pete, about the whole, you'd rather beat an inferior competition to the best. I don't agree with that at all, but I mean, going off that, we talked about how, I mean, obviously if Notre Dame beats Clemson there in the college football playoff, and as long as they don't get quote unquote blown out, they're probably in the college football playoff too. But Mm -hmm. it's, that's like a, it's a blurry line because it's not like if they lose by less than 10, they're in. Like, what do you think the game flow has to be in a loss for them to be seriously taken as going, getting to the CFP, even if they lose? Is it like... Losing in the final seconds? Is it like putting up a good fight? Obviously, there's an external factor. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I think that Notre Dame has to have the ball in the fourth quarter with a chance to tie it. How about that? Like, I think I think that would be close enough for them to get it. Beyond that, I don't know. And, I, and by the fourth quarter, I mean like not 15 minutes to go. I mean like final five minutes um, where the game is in doubt throughout. And at the end of the game, you're like, 
yeah, I'd, I'd watch Notre Dame Clemson part three. Like, great, let's do it. Um, you you would have to want to see more of it. You know, it's like the the first Alabama LSU game from what 2011. Like, nobody wanted to see that again. So give give me a high value entertainment game that's a three point game at the end, no matter who wins. Like that, I think we'll get that Notre Dame will skate through to the playoff on that. Yeah, I agree. I think it has to be a scenario at the end of the game in which people are like, I think Notre Dame could compete with them and probably win in game in a third game. If it's mm-hmm. like, well, the only reason they won game one is because Trevor Lawrence in the front seven was out. If that's the narrative, yeah. game, they're not going to get into the college football playoff. You want to, yeah, you got to avoid that. You got to avoid the fact that like somehow the first result is diminished. Uh, where Lawrence, either Lawrence is so good or you didn't play very well. You know, could be both, but you got to avoid that. You, you, if people are talking about Notre Dame, it's like, well, eh, you know, that was a great win, but Lawrence just threw for 712 yards on you. Um, that's not going to cut it. Uh, but I think that even whether it's 43-40 or 23-20, I think you got if you have a tight game, I think people are going to want to see more of it. So right now, who do you have as your top five teams in the country in order? Uh, I mean, I would have Alabama one because I serve the altar of Nick Saban um, until until proven otherwise. Yeah. Um, and then I would then I would have Notre Dame two, Ohio State three, and I think Clemson is a, a solid four. I think there's a pretty big gap between Clemson and then I think you'd probably put Florida there right now, um, but I think there's a, a sizable gap between those four teams and whoever's at number five. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, we do get into the playoff. We get a Bama or an Ohio State type matchup. Are we there yet? Have we entered tier one? Are we finally here? I know we haven't seen it in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen it while you've covered the team. But have we finally made it to the point where we don't have to be scared on game day? We're going to go in there. We're going to take care of business and get it done. I think that uh, if they won that semi then they would enter the next tier. And I think, like, the, t- the tiers are, to me at least, it's Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson are tier one. And then you've got sort of Georgia, Oklahoma. LSU is bad this year, but they won a title, so i got to give them a little bit of a doubt. And I think, like, Notre Dame is, like, right after that. And I think if Notre Dame beat Alabama or beat Ohio State, then I think you would talk about Notre Dame in the same way you talked about Georgia, where – they're like knocking on the door, not to make the playoff, but to win it. And suddenly the expectations around Notre Dame, you know, I, I think we all sort of view Notre Dame as like, if they make the playoff, it's a good year. Like that's not how things are viewed at Georgia. You got to make the playoff and win in the playoff. And I think Notre Dame, that would be the jump that they would make. It would be an expectations jump to suddenly you're looking at Notre Dame season and not just hoping that they make the playoff, but expecting them to make it and almost expecting them to win when they're in it. Um, so I think if Notre Dame got a win in the playoff, that's that's what it would do for the reputation of the program, which I, I think would be massive. So, yeah, and I'll have you know we were all born after 88, so we have not yeah. seen we have not seen the glory yet. We've seen, we've seen it on the highlight tapes and stuff, but nothing yes. in, in person. Standard so. definition. Yes. So we obviously were able to pick your brain about Notre Dame football. So I, I want to get a, a little more personal with you. You've been covering the team for quite some time, like you mentioned. You walk away from from everything tomorrow from covering this team. What are your top three moments? Ooh, top three moments covering Notre Dame. Um, 
I would say the Bush push game would be number one because it was a full house. The way that it ended, you thought Notre Dame had won. Then the way, I mean, then fans are on the, or players on the field, they come off and it's like, it's a, it's a game that we still refer to by like a name and a verb. There aren't, you don't cover a lot of games that you're like, push, push. Like, what are you talking about? Everyone knows what that is. Then I would say probably Clemson would, the Clemson win would be number two. Um, that was, I mean, it was just sort of a unique, we've never seen it. We were, we were talking about this on the show already. Like in, in my lifetime covering them since 2000, I've never seen that game before. So that was um, incredible. Uh, and then three, I would say I'm torn on number three between Oklahoma in 2012, like that whole game and the pregame of the Alabama game, because you felt like you were going to like a heavyweight boxing match. It was so loud in there before the game. There were like stars all over the place on the field. It was just an incredible environment. The game itself was not great, but the pregame was really cool. Um, so I try to remember the good times of being down there for that week. So yeah, it's, I guess it's Bush push number one, Clemson win number two, and then I'm, t- I'm torn between Oklahoma 2012, which was just an awesome win. And um, the the pregame of the national championship. So I got to ask you: Were you a Notre Dame fan prior to becoming, you know, a reporter for them? And take us through how you ended up covering the Irish. Ethan and I are both. Well, I'm a grad student now, but Ethan is finishing his undergrad. Probably a similar, you know, journey that you've taken. Take us through mm-hmm. that journey and how you got to where you're at today, where you're, you know, one of the number one sources for Notre Dame news. Uh, so the first question, I was not a Notre Dame fan growing up at all. Uh, I liked college football. I grew up in Michigan. Uh, my mom went to Michigan state. My dad went to Michigan. So it was a lot of like big 10 stuff. And I mean, I remember watching the Notre Dame games when they would play Michigan or Michigan state. When I was a kid, when I was in college, I went to a couple of the Notre Dame at Michigan state games and sat in the student section in East Lansing. Those were like the Bob Bob Davy era. Like they always ended in those like really bizarre ways. But if you're in the Michigan State student section, it was awesome. So that was, I, you know, I just love college football. And then in terms of getting into Notre Dame, I was working for a newspaper in Chicago in 2000, or outside Chicago in 2000 after I graduated from college. Uh, I was dating a girl who was at law school at Notre Dame. And there was a job opening at Blue and Gold Illustrated. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know the publication existed. So I applied to that really just so I could be closer to her. Got the job. We got married. Um, been married about, about 18 years now. And then um, one thing we'll do another is at Blue and Gold Illustrated for three years. Started Irish Illustrated and then jumped over to The Athletic about two and a half years ago. So it's, I mean, I'm... I'm the luckiest guy to have this job because I, you know, not only how I got it, um, but I just, I feel like I've sort of found a good niche here where I think people appreciate my coverage. I appreciate getting to know Notre Dame fans, like coming on podcasts like this. Um, I, I really have enjoyed sort of the give and take with the Notre Dame fan base. I'd like to think that not being a fan is a positive for my coverage because I can shoot it a little bit more straight maybe than some others. Um, yes. But I, I, I love, I have the best job. Like it's, um, it's a beast once you get into November and you've been covering a season for three months, but it's an awesome job. I would never complain about it. this. This year is completely weird and bizarre and I hope we never repeat it again uh, yeah. uh, from a pandemic standpoint, but 
covering an undefeated team is a hell of a lot of fun too. The straightest of shooters, and we'll make sure we edit that to where you meeting your wife at Notre Dame is the number one undisputed moment for when you went here. But uh, no, so the, I would say, just to be clear, we met in undergrad at DePaul. At, we both went to DePaul University. Oh, nice. So, nice. so yeah, we were uh, we we were dating already by the time she was at Notre Dame Law School. But uh, that that without that, if, if she was between Notre Dame and Vanderbilt, if she had gone to Vanderbilt. I don't think I'd be on this podcast. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I was going to say, Ethan and I are trying to do our thing over at NIU. We've been to a couple of games, but like you said, it's so much fun covering an undefeated 8-0 team. We're on the reverse end of that uh, in the press conferences and at the games on an 0-3 team in our rebuild. So we can't wait to be there on on your stage, I guess you would say, on your level. But, yeah, it's it's awesome to see the way you are with your followers and your following. And then, too, like you said, you're not a fan of the team, so you can shoot it a little bit straighter than everybody else. Because I know we have, sometimes our bias shows, but we try to keep it off <laughs> up the air as much as possible. Yeah, I would say I didn't know you weren't a Notre Dame fan. Like, So that makes me feel a lot better about what you've been saying because now I can think <laughs> – my friends that I, I'm not delusional because they, they all tell me I'm delusional. But going on with another question, you say you've been covering Notre Dame for um, a good a good amount of years now. I'm sure you've heard this talk about them joining a conference a bunch. What do you think would have to happen for them to join a conference? And do you think if they were to win a national title this year, does that make it more likely for them to want to stay in the ACC and just duke it out with Clemson every year? Or does it make like Notre Dame say, we joined the conference for one season, won every game, won a national title, and then just remained independent forever. So what do you think in that? In that I, I don't think the end game of the season will impact Notre Dame's join or not join opinion at all. Um, I think that for how cool the season has been from a win-loss standpoint around Notre Dame, I feel like there's a sense of loss that, USC, uh, Stanford, you know, Navy, you know, Lambeau Field, Ireland, LA, like there, there's something missing from this schedule for Notre Dame, uh, despite all the wins, which is saying something that you would even think about <clears throat> the games you're not playing when you're winning all the ones that you are. So I don't, I don't think that will change Notre Dame's opinion on, on joining a conference. What would it take for them to join? I, I think they'd have to somehow be excluded from the playoff. Um, that the playoff would have to decide, hey, you, it's we're going to, I don't even know how this would work, a six-team playoff where it's the five power five conference champions and the highest group of five champion, and that's it. Nobody else is included. That's not going to happen. That, love that idea, especially with teams like BYU and Cincinnati looking like right. how they're looking this year. It's like, and I, it's the reason, like Notre Dame was going to be one of the reasons that never happens, but the second team in the SEC is going to be the other reason that never happens because the SEC is not going to be like, you're telling me that we get to 12 and 0 Alabama versus 12 and 0 Georgia and the loser has no chance. Like that doesn't make any sense. So it, um, I just don't ever see that happening. I mean, if the playoff expands, it's going to go to eight and they're, you're not going to have eight conference champions in there. Um, I think Notre Dame's chances to make that playoff will be similar to how it is now where 12 and 0 you're in for sure. 11 and one probably in 10 and two, probably not. And I, I think Notre Dame is okay with that math. Um, I think that they're okay with the cost of independence being, maybe you don't get the benefit of the doubt uh, if you're 11 and one, cause you didn't win a conference championship game, but the benefit of 
opening the season in Ireland, ending it in LA, play, playing at Lambeau Field. Like the schedule was awesome. You know, even look a couple of years down the road, you've got home and homes with Clemson and Ohio State in the same year, plus USC and Stanford. Like that's ridiculous. But those are games we want to see, right? It might, it probably will make the playoff a lot harder to make it, but you're going to see some awesome football along the way. But people will have you think that we schedule cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no Wofford or West Carolina around these parts, fellas. None of that. Yeah, or- that's uh, that's a real. I think they get dinged so much by Navy. Like people think Navy is how Navy was in 1996. Like <laughs> Navy is good. Um, yeah. Like they were decent last year. I mean, we just handled them like that was a quality team. That I yeah. mean, look at look at how we look at it. They ended up in the Camping World Bowl because of what you just explained. If they went off yeah. of just who was the best team, they're definitely in that New Year's Six Bowl. But Virginia got the nod, and then they got boat raced by Florida in the Orange Bowl. Yeah, it's, and it's like last year, why didn't Notre Dame move up at all in November? It wasn't because they were independent. It's because they were stuck playing ACC teams that were bad. Um, you know, there just wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot to move the needle. And I think, you know, that would have been the danger with this schedule, too. If they, let's say they had lost to Clemson on November 7th, we, you know, we'd be talking about, like, how good is Notre Dame? I don't know. Like, they beat Georgia Tech and Pittsburgh. Like, is that very impressive? I don't know. The ACC is, is difficult that way because you do, there's just not a lot of shots at marquee games. Um, Miami's all over the place. They're good this year. Clemson is incredible. But then everybody else is sort of the same. And I don't think those the schools in the ACC, you know, garner a whole lot of national respect, even when they're up. Like, North Carolina is up right now, but I still don't I, – you know, if Notre Dame beats North Carolina next Friday, I don't think we're going to be talking about, like, wow, what a marquee win, right? Like, it'll just be like – that was a pretty good ACC team that they beat. Um, so there's just not a lot of opportunities to really move the needle, I think, nationally in this league. So I'll go out and say it. How do we avoid the secondary letdown that we had against Clemson against? I mean, Sam Howell had seven touchdowns, was it, last week, and like 600 yards. And then Sam Hartman on the other side of the field for Wake Forest, definitely a quality ACC quarterback. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that right now the only, I guess you would say, weakness in our defense is the secondary giving up chunk plays and big yards like that. How do we avoid that against North Carolina and Wake Forest? Um, I mean, it's a good question because I, I think North Carolina will have some chunk plays. Um, you know, how do you avoid it? Can you blitz Sam Howell a little bit more? Um, I, I think for Notre Dame to really comfortably get over the line, you're going to need Kyle Hamilton to – sort of do some of those freaky things more often, um, you know, catch that pick six and return it for a touchdown. Like, you know, they had that drop against Boston college. So I, I don't know how Clark Lee is going to play it uh, at North Carolina. I feel like Notre Dame is good enough offensively, especially running the ball to control the pace of the game. But I think if you just watched Clark Lee's defense versus North Carolina's offense, and that was the whole game, I think that would be a fascinating matchup. I'm not sure how Clark Lee is, like, what kind of curveball he's going to throw at, at Sam Howell. They have some really good receivers and a great run game. I'm not sure their offensive line is amazing, but I think it's it's good enough. It's probably one of the better ones in the Raymond space. So, you know, do you try to control tempo? Do you try to win a game in the high 20s by playing keep away a little bit? Maybe you do that. Maybe that's part of the defensive game plan. I'm not really sure, but... I do think the, the game against North Carolina, I think, is incredibly fascinating. Might not have, like, a great brand name on the other side of the field, but in terms of the matchups within that game, I think it's going to be a really good one. 
I want to take it back to something you touched on earlier with just how crazy it's been with the pandemic this year. And, you know, all three of us write about, or all four of us uh, write about Notre Dame and Brandon and I are lucky enough to be able to get into those zoom press conferences at Northern Illinois and talk to the players that way for you. How did this year really change your job? Do you feel you've had more availability to the players and coaches with zoom? Um, you know, in general, give the the fans a taste of what we all have had to deal with this season. It's hard. I mean, this is this is the hardest season by far. Um, we have less availability to the players than we've ever had. Um, we have less availability to, to assistant coaches than we've ever had. Uh, I'm fortunate enough that when I be able to pitch an interesting story that I think is just like different, um, Notre Dame has worked with me on that to get me Clark Lee or get me Jeremiah Usukoromoa in kind of a one-on-one Zoom or a phone call. That hasn't happened a lot, but I think what you really miss, you miss being in the same room with these people and, you know, chatting with a player after the fact about, you know, maybe something they're doing academically or something going on in their personal life or, you know, some aspiration they have that like leads to another story down the road, right? Like, it's, it's much harder to find threads to pull to find the next fun story to write. On top of that, it's like you're on these Zoom calls, so everybody gets every quote all the time. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, you sitting down with a player, you have a group interview, and then maybe you'd be the last person there, and you'd ask a couple, a couple questions one-on-one just because that was the circumstance you were in. We're never in that circumstance right now, so it's it's much harder to get to know the players it's much harder to sort of find new stories. Um, I realize there are way more important things going on in the world than like my ability to find a good story about Notre Dame football. But just from a reporter's perspective, that's that's been probably the biggest challenge for me. And it's crazy too, especially for us, because we cover such a, a smaller school. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we're talking Notre Dame right now, but for the two of us covering a team like Northern Illinois, you know, there is such a, a more personal vibe to that. And I feel that hundred percent, like the last time we were out there with the team was a pro day or it was the pro day right before yeah. the draft. And that was the last time we were able to really personally connect with the players and get a feel of how they are outside of, you know, Skype conversations or zoom conversations. So I feel that on a personal level and, and really just thank you for all the content you've been putting out over this course of this season. And, you know, I know the three of us have, have benefited a lot from the things you've tweeted out. You know, I use your quotes for uh, post-game uh, press conferences, things like that. So despite everything, you know, from from all of us, you know, thank you for providing that coverage to us and the Notre Dame fans. I, pre- I appreciate you reading. It's like, I, it's, I have a great job. It's so much fun. Um, this season has been a real challenge, and I hope to never repeat it again. <laughs> There's an insatiable appetite for Notre Dame coverage, right? They just got to find some unique angles to hit that, you know, maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't go down that path. Like I, I wrote a story about Notre Dame, the, the rally patch in September in a normal circumstance, a normal season, I probably wouldn't have done that because I would have some other things that I'd be working on, but you just got to find different stuff to do. Um, and that's, you know, it's part of the challenge. And that's the joy of college football too. Anything can happen any given Saturday. And I agree with you, college football. It, I think it's more fun than the NFL, to be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. hundred times out of hundred, I would rather watch a college football game than an NFL yeah. game. Can we go ahead and coin the term like South Bend Shefty? Because you are like the first person that everyone <laughs> checks when the news come out, like call it a spade a spade. Like I don't, I don't have like a, my like 
I don't, I won't say I have your tweet notification set up, but when I see you tweet, I know is business. I know yeah. that's the source. That's the, who we need to find. And that's where it's at. I try, yeah, I try to keep that in mind when I'm tweeting about my kids or uh, Liverpool soccer or anything like that. Cause I, just, I think there are people like, Oh, what? Oh. I, I can't promise you that that's not going to stop, but I, I, I definitely, I want people to know that I'm aware that I'm probably frustrating some people when I tweet about non Notre Dame. College football season ends at some point, right? Yeah, I know. Right? 365 days a year. We wish it was that way. So in your opinion, who has improved their draft stock the most during this shortened season? That's a good question. I, I think probably from a financial standpoint, Owusu Koromoa, like he was probably like an end of the first round pick to mid first round pick. And that's a difference of like millions of dollars. So that's significant. You know, would have Ian Book been drafted after five games? Probably not. After 12 games? Probably so. So I think that that's, that's one that I think is, is a real jump. Beyond that, I'm not sure if anybody really like sort of strikes me as like, wow, this guy made a huge move. I think the offensive linemen are sort of as we thought they were going to be when the season started. You know, the outside skill guys are probably looking to get into camp. You know, defensively, did Ade, did Ade Ogundeje or Dalen Hayes improve their draft stock? I think that sort of like Book, they've got a chance to really end on a, on a high note and, and yeah, to make, a, to make a jump next spring. But um, I'm not sure there's anybody that has really blown me away. Like, I, I think the big surprise is, like, Kyron Williams isn't coming out because he can't. Um, and then you look at the receivers, those have been big surprises, but I think they're surprises in the way, like you didn't know if Notre Dame had anything, uh, and now they have a couple good players. You mentioned Ian Book, and I agree with you because he's really improved his stock in the last four games. Do you, I, I agree that he ends up probably getting drafted at the very tail end. Do you think he has the ability to be, an, I don't think he can be an NFL starter, probably a backup, but what are your thoughts on that? I think that, you know, a career as a backup, that's totally inbounds for him. You know, I have to be the right fit, right coach, right scheme, all that. I think that's true for probably all quarterbacks. So I think that he's he's shown enough to get into camp and have a shot to make it. You know, maybe, maybe he'll be a practice squad guy his first year. That's all right. You know, that those guys get paid too. You know, is he going to be an NFL starter? I, I wouldn't say that, um, but – you certainly could hang around the league for quite a while if he finds the right fit. And then in your opinion, you know, you've covered the team for 20 years. Uh, I believe I was six years old. Brian, I believe, was either five or six, and Ethan was three. So who are the top three players that you've seen in your time at Notre Dame and you've had the privilege to cover? Good question. Um, Quentin Nelson, I think, would be number one. And then I would go, oh, man, after that, Probably Brady Quinn, and after that, I'm I'm torn between Golden Tate and Jalen Smith uh, as my number three. Can we get a free Golden Tate too? Because the Giants aren't using him the right way either. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's absurd at this that. point. Yeah, those would be my guys. But Nelson was just so far and away like a freak for that position. He made playing offensive guard cool. So, like, you get a lot of bonus points for that. And, like, yeah, he was just – he was a super interesting guy to cover, too. Yeah, an absolute animal and, and someone that I hate every time I see the Bears have to go play and play against the Colts because I know it's going to be a war. 
Real quick, before we let you go for the day, where can we find you at on social media and specifically where can we find your work? Uh, so social media, I'm on Twitter at Pete Sampson underscore. Uh, and then everything that I do is on theathletic.com. Uh, we've got a Notre Dame page over there. So my stuff, uh, Matt Fortuna, who I work with closely, we do a podcast called The Shamrock. He does some Notre Dame stuff. He's a national writer, but has covered Notre Dame in the past. Um, and hey, when, when Notre Dame's good, a lot of people are writing about Notre Dame over there beyond me. So it's uh, come check us out, The Athletic. It's a subscription service. There are promos pretty much from here to infinity. Um, so if you want to check us out, I think the first year you can pretty much get it 40% off. So it comes out to be about 36 bucks for a year. I love working there. I love reading it. Um, I think it's a pretty unique place to, to work. Um, and people are putting out some, some really interesting content there. So uh, you can check me out at The Athletic and along with about 300 other writers. And then on the reverse end of that, do you have any questions for us? So what made you guys start this podcast? How long have you guys been going? So on tap, Sportsnet started uh, about a year and a half ago in March. Okay. And it was specifically supposed to be like a Chicago-based thing. And I was mm-hmm. initially pulled in to be a Cubs writer. And then I'm a big Notre Dame football and basketball fan as well. So I actually pushed to them, why can't, why, we, should, we should expand to Notre Dame. And they were, I feel like they're initially hesitant towards it because I don't think any of them actually like Notre Dame as like a... They hate us all. They always give us trash in the yeah. group chat. Like none of them are Notre Dame. But do, like they like traffic on the site, right? So you yeah. like Notre Dame. 100%. Yeah. And especially with Notre Dame football, I was like, that's probably one of the biggest brands like there is in terms of collegiate sports. Like you got the, mm-hmm. I mean, we got the Cubs, Bulls and everything. I was like, if we can get a little bit of a college football aspect to it, That'd be huge. And then we obviously got Brandon and Ethan on board real quick after that. And then we started June of last year. And we just kind of hit the ground running with our our Twitter's gotten fairly more popular than I thought it would be. And then, I mean, it helps when we're getting guys like you on board that makes us a little bit more credible. So I, I love it. This is probably, this is like my only hobby. So it's awesome. Okay. That's cool. Well, I'm glad you like have a good creative outlet. Like, so you guys do a lot of NIU stuff, or how how does like that fit into the mix of what you guys are working on? So yeah, so for Brian, Brian, like he said, he does Notre Dame and the Cubs, and then mm-hmm. I started with the Bears, and then similar to Brian, like I saw Rudy when I was like in middle school, and I was that kid on my team, so I instantly gravitated towards Notre Dame, and then Ethan is actually my roommate, so. Ah, big, okay. big Notre Dame fan. He he was born into it, so he had no choice. And then he found out what I was doing. And like I mentioned, we're both. He's a journalism major. I was a comms major. And now I'm in uh, post-grad at NIU for sport management. But through ONTAP, we were able to become uh, credentialed journalists for NIU. So we're like, in a sense, teaching ourselves the ropes. But uh, we've also like... Like Brian said, like we've had uh, we've had Tony Jones on here, we've had Max Redfield, we've had Jameer Jones, and a couple other players to the cool. point where we've had guests. But I will say, you're our very first writer, and definitely the one that we're going to go to in the future. So, <laughs> cool. It's like having players on. Like that's that's good. I mean, I think that you can get some good insight from them. That definitely makes it unique. Because I, you know, some not every podcast has guests on uh, from a player's point of view so that that probably would be good i would think yeah and it's probably sick of our voices at some time so. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's i mean it's cool for me like I, like brandon said i was born into it um 
my grandfather actually passed away the week of the Clemson game. I'd gone out to oh, South wow. Bend from here. Uh, he was a diehard, and that's how I got into it. Uh, I'd like to think he helped Notre Dame beat Clemson that night. I'll take the credit for that one. Uh, Good vibes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'll take those vibes. When the world returns to normal, hopefully I'll bump into you guys around a Notre Dame game sometime. Hey, we would love to have that happen. It was a shame that we couldn't get out there this year, but you're one of the uh, the blessed people that gets to see the games out there, and you make sure that all the news and everything gets out to everyone before anybody else. But, guys, do you have any wrap-up uh, questions or thoughts here for Pete today? Just thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Hey, it's my yeah. pleasure, guys. Yeah, appreciate it, Pete, so much. Thank you for taking time out of your day, and we're looking forward to the rest of the season. And hope to see you covering the title game here at the end of the year. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, we hope we hope that you add to those memories and maybe make some new one, <laughs> new ones here at the end of the season with the stakes that are you know at hand. But I I can see you wincing like when I say like Bush Push is the most memorable game I've covered. Like you're like ah oh, God, like can so, you get something better at number one. I'll have you know, I, I'm at my sister's right now in Colorado. The last time, or when the Bush Push game happened, I was in Hawaii also with my sister, but in a wheelchair. And I stood up from that wheelchair. So I don't think I actually needed the wheelchair when it happened. <laughs> I think I was just being a little bit of a baby. But yeah, I was on the, I was on the uh, injured list. I had gone through, uh, I had a, a hotel door opened on my toe. So yeah, I was just uh, milking that to the fullest regard but still being a full ND fan at like nine years old. So Pete, I was actually at the Bush push game. I'll never forget that. That was unbelievable. I'll never forget the crowd after we thought we won. That was, that's just permanently in my memory. Oh yeah. I remember where I was standing. I was on the 35 yard line on the Notre Dame side because like we, we, you go down to the field for the final five minutes of the game, like in normal times, not pandemic times. So like, I'm like in that mess. Um, and I remember staring like Corey Mays is tugging people and like you're seeing I could see Pete Carroll across the way. It's just like it's just absolute madness. Um, so that's that definitely is the images of that game are burned into my brain in a way that well, Clemson was awesome. We don't get to go down on the field. Like I if I was down there on the field for the field storming, like to me that would be clear number one. Thank you for not like, participating in that as well. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, <laughs> I don't want to like shut down my kid's school with a COVID scare. Um, yeah, yeah, just like I was just removed on the ninth floor of the press box, so you're not like you're not feeling that energy the way that you were for for the Bush push. Perfect. Well, I think uh, this is one of our best interviews. We really do appreciate you taking the time to hang out with just a couple young podcasters trying to get you know the type of audience that you have and the reach that you have. But again. Thank you to our listeners again for tuning in. We promised you a special interview for the bye week. We hope this delivers. This was Irish on Tap presented to you by the On Tap Sportsnet. Don't forget to check out our friends over at Manscaped. Use the promo code On Tap. You receive twenty percent off and free shipping on your order. But we got nothing else for you guys today. Stay tuned and go Irish.